Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Rowe. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, proud member of the Food Media Network. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. And today's episode is all about how to conduct better and more effective class discussions, which is such an important skill for us as teachers to have in our Chef Educator's Toolbox. And for those that have a copy of my book titled Culinary Educator's Teaching Tools and Tips, you will see that I cover this topic pretty heavy in chapter seven, which is called uh, facilitating a discussion. And for those that don't have the book, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes if you want to get more info on it or maybe purchase a copy. You can just Google it too, Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips. It's published by Kendall Hunt, and I think it's around $40. But anyway, let's get into it. So we all know it is important for teachers to use active learning strategies, but at the same time, most every teacher has experienced that anxiety-producing moment when a promising class discussion fizzles out. Now, we sometimes assume it just happened due to chance or an accident. However, the reality is that effective class discussions, much like effective lectures, are the result of careful planning. Students must also do their part by coming to class ready to participate. And there are ways that we can do that to increase the likelihood that they will come prepared. So whether you are a new faculty member or a teaching veteran, if you're looking for advice on how to hold a better class discussion, then this episode is for you. I'm going to be talking about how to structure your course and your class sessions in ways that will get students actively participating, which of course will enhance their learning. So let me start off by saying that class discussions involve risk-taking. And that's risk-taking on the part of the students and the professor. Now, for students, there's always the risk of embarrassment. We've all been there ourselves. You know, and students question it. What if I raise my hand and I'm wrong? What will the professor and my classmates think of me? Am I talking too much? Or if I haven't finished the assigned reading, will speaking up expose my lack of preparation? Well, because of things like this, many students will decide it's safer to stay silent and leave the discussion to the handful of classmates who are eager to talk. Now, for us, the instructors, opening up the class for discussion means we risk losing at least some control over what happens. Our efforts may succeed wonderfully, and they sometimes do, or it can lead to tense and awkward moments, especially if it kind of gets off the rails, off the track. I mean, what if students' responses are all misleading or incorrect? Or worse, what happens if a student makes a comment that is sexist, racist, homophobic, or some other way offensive? Isn't it safer just to stick to lecturing and keep control firmly in our own hands as the teacher? Well, we can't let these uncertainties dissuade us because there are good reasons to engage students in class discussions. You know, studies have shown discussions lead to greater student learning and the development of critical thinking skills. 
And it's a known fact that students learn more when they're actively engaged with the material, with their instructor, and with their classmates. And perhaps the easiest and most common way to engage them is via a discussion. Think of it this way. In any college classroom, the people doing the most work are also the ones doing the most learning. So if you and me, the instructors, are doing the most work as we design and present our compelling lecture, we may be relearning a lot, right? Or at least solidifying our understanding of the course material. However, it's the students who should be learning the most in class. And so they need to do most of the work. And having a discussion is one strategy for shifting that work from us, the instructor, to the students. Rather than being vessels into which we pour information, our students become co-creators of knowledge and understanding. Well, how are we going to do this? How do we go about creating the kind of class discussion that will lead to greater learning? Well, here are a few strategies that you can use to change the norms of class discussions. So as a starting point, we must first recognize that the college classroom is a social environment, right? High school classroom as well. Whenever humans get together, our behavior is guided by social norms, which are patterned in unspoken ways of interacting that are so ingrained they go unnoticed until someone violates them. So let's talk about college classroom, full of norms that guide students and faculty behavior. For instance, there's a seating norm. Wherever students sit on the first day of class tends to be where they will sit for the entire course. I'm sure you've all seen this, whether high school or college. And few faculty members assign seats or stipulate on the syllabus that students must sit in the same spot all semester. Yet the students do this. But imagine you're surprised if during, say, I don't know, fifth, the fifth week of the semester, you arrived to find that all of your students had all switched seats. You would suddenly become aware of this norm because students were violating it, right? It's outside the norm. They're doing something that's not what we considered normal. Likewise, student participation, or lack thereof, is influenced by two key classroom norms. This was first identified by sociologists back in the 70s, 76, somewhere around then, that the two norms work together to keep most students from speaking up in class. And as instructors, we will have to take deliberate steps to counter both of these norms. So let's talk about them first, the two norms that they identified. Norm number one, they called civil attention. In a typical classroom, students aren't required to pay attention. They only need to pay civil attention. So what that means is that so long as students appear to be listening, they can expect that the professor won't call on them unless they signal, usually by raising their hand, a willingness to participate. So how do students demonstrate civil attention? Well, by nodding their heads, taking notes, maybe they chuckle at the instructor's attempt at humor, or they make brief eye contact. They do all these things as long as they don't do other things, right? So they do these things that actively gives them, uh, makes them seem like they're paying civil attention. So students who are paying civil attention, as we know, aren't necessarily listening. They may in fact be daydreaming or even deciding on what they're going to eat for lunch that day. Of course, they may also be writing a paper for another course, or if they've got their laptops with them, they could be doing online shopping when they appear to be taking notes, but they're paying civil attention. 
students perceive that they have met their obligation to the course and to you, the instructor, right? They're, they're nodding, they're listening, they're, they're being polite, right? But they're not, they're not really listening, right? They're just paying civil attention. But engage in a discussion, well, they see that as optional. I don't really have to engage. I just have to sit here and nod and, yeah, smile, <laughs> joke a little bit, and I've done my job. Now, this norm also allows students to avoid accountability for failing to come to class prepared because they know that the instructor will not question them unless they volunteer. Their silence actually may be hiding a lack of preparation. But as long as they come to class and they nod and they smile, they think, well, I'm not going to get picked on, so I didn't have to do the reading. Now, the other norm that they identified, norm number two, they called consolidation of responsibility. Now, regardless of class size, only a small number of students typically five to eight, they found, will account for 75 to 95% of the comments made in the discussion. And it's easy as instructors for us to be deceived into thinking that we helped facilitate a great discussion, when in reality, we had a great discussion with five students, while the majority of our class were just spectators. This consolidation of responsibility norm means that a few students assume responsibility for most of the discussion. So we think, wow, we had a really great talk. But if we really stop and think about it, it was these certain five, six, seven, eight kids, students that we were really conversing with. The rest were just, you know, doing that civil attention, nodding their heads. Yep, yep, yep. Well, the good news is that social norms can be changed. They exist only because we implicitly comply with them. So here are five strategies we can use as instructors to use to, to change students' behavior and kind of disrupt the norms that get in the way of a good discussion. So number one, ask better questions. Now that's more complicated than it probably seems. Most teachers know a poor question when we hear it. For example, calling out, are there any questions? Well, that's a bad question, right? Because all the students go, no, no, we all got it, right? So this is a typically an ineffective way to start a productive discussion. Yes or no questions are another method that rarely leads to a thoughtful exchange. Ask questions for which there is a single correct response may be a good way to check whether the students did the reading, but it's not an effective discussion starter. So we have to kind of think about it and make a little plan here. So a good question is one that allows for multiple perspectives. It shows that the topic can be viewed from a variety of angles, even though, you know, they may not all be equally relevant or helpful. So we need to plan and prepare for the discussion by composing specific questions that will move the discussion forward, illuminate major points and prompt students to offer evidence for their assertions and to consider other points of views. Now, here's a few ways that we can do that. Frame the question is one great way to inspire a range of answers. Now, in my lesson plan, I write down the questions I'm going to use in a discussion, and I actually write down the answers that I usually get, and then I build questions off of those answers. So I already kind of have an outline, because when you teach a class, the same class of enough times, you kind of know what you're going to get. There's not a lot of surprises out there, so I can really structure it. But again, going for a range of answers. For example, don't ask, when did the U.S. Department of labor recognize and classify chefs as a profession rather than listing them as a domestic? Well, this is a question, as we all know, with a single correct answer, right? It's that they're going to come up with a date or a year. Instead, I would reframe that and I might write it down in my lesson plan. Why did the U.S. government take until 1976 to classify chefs as a profession and what prompted them to do so? 
I would maybe follow up with, why do you think it took them so long to change the classification? What was the effect, if any, from the change in classification of chefs as a profession? So you see, I kind of have all those. So first I might say, what took them so long? Then I might say, why do you think it took them so long? What was the effects, if any, from the change in classifications? So you can keep following up and that gets that discussion going. You can also ask students to apply a variety of theories or perspectives to a particular example. So in a nutrition course, for example, you might ask, we've covered the pros and cons of numerous fad diets and explored explanations to why they don't always work with most people. So now take the case of someone who is older and extremely overweight and choose one of the various fad diets out there today and tell us why it most likely would or would not work to help this person lose weight. So you've already talked about these fad diets. So it's, you know, hopefully they're paying attention or they read about them. So now you're asking them, you know, to utilize that information in class. So it's leaving it open to multiple answers. Conversely, after illustrating a topic or a concept, you could ask students to provide their own example. So I might say like, well, we've just covered dry heat cooking and I provided you with an example. Give me a different example of a classic recipe that uses dry heat cooking. And then I would follow up, where and when have you observed or experienced this dish? So now they're going to have to take that dry heat information they had. They're going to have to apply it to a specific classic recipe. And then I'd ask them where. And they might say, well, I ate it at a restaurant or it was a a recipe I created at a restaurant that I worked at. So again, it's opening up that discussion. Other students might jump in on that. They have similar experiences. So it's how we're getting that discussion up and running. You could also ask about process and not content. In some fields like science and mathematics, this is often only a single correct response. So we don't really want to ask about the content. We want to ask about the process, how they got there, so then we can get that discussion started instead of it stopping it right right away with one single only uh, correct answer. So instead of asking questions that seek the correct answer, ask about the process. I might say, here's the food cost equation on the board. Tell me, what is a good first step in calculating food cost in a restaurant? Where would we begin? So now it's not just that single answer of what is food costing or something along those lines or what is the formula, but now they got to think about what's the first step. If they were in a restaurant, they were the chef and they have to start calculating out all their recipes, right? All their food costs. So where would they begin in that process? So number two, set the stage, which is something I do all the time on the first day. Now, many faculty members spend the first day of class checking names against the class roster, going over the syllabus in hopes of clarifying expectations and going over procedures. And usually the teacher's voice is the only one heard that day. She's setting the groundwork. It's day one. They don't know what to expect. They come in. It's like, yep, just like every other class, teacher-centered, not student-centered. Well, if you spend your first class session in that manner, you're signaling that the norm in your course will be civil attention right? They just have to sit there, listen to you and nod. If you try to change students' expectations after, say, the first three weeks, they are likely to be surprised and they won't adapt well to this, right? They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. On day one, day two, this is what we did. Now, why are you changing things up? Why are we doing this, right? So instead, establish on the first day that you want them to participate regularly in class, that civil attention is not sufficient in your class. Now, for those that have a copy of my book, in chapter two, I share a copy of the student information sheet that I use in many of my classes on day one. 
And I use this not only to gather information, but to also signal to the students that active participation in my class will be the norm. Right. So now they know they have this student information sheet. They have to report out. I get them day one right away that they're talking in class. They're sharing. They're having discussions. Now, if you want advice uh, on how to teach a good first day of class, check out my podcast episode on that topic. If you look, you'll see I did one on, you know, on the first day of class. And one of it is to get them to start speaking. So check out that episode if you haven't already. Another activity that I often use that could you could try is to utilize a syllabus quiz to show that you value participation. You know, rather than reading the syllabus to students on the first day, I create some of my classes, a multiple choice quiz, maybe 10, 20 questions on key elements of the syllabus that I would use. On, I use this quiz on day one. I divide the class into small groups, depending on the size of the class. I usually do anywhere between three and eight students in a group. Again, I teach all different sizes and they get to work in a group on this quiz. And afterwards, I ask the groups to provide the correct answers for each question in turn. And I check to see if further clarification is needed. The quiz sets the norm in the course that discussions will be utilized. Right away, they know they're going to be working in groups. They're going to be talking. They're going to be sharing. And that student participation is required because they're going to get a grade. So for more information, again, on how to write an effective syllabus, check out a po- my podcast episode on that topic. I have one just on syllabus. And then you can take those key points instead of talking about them in class, again, instructor-centered, teacher-centered, flip it around, have them take a quiz on it and report out. Now it becomes student-centered and it hones them in onto the areas of the syllabus that you want them to know. Now, if I'm going to be using groups throughout the course, I might also ask the members of those initial groups to exchange names and contact information with each other. This helps to build a sense of community and gives the students a a peer contact list. Should they miss a class or have questions about the homework, they'll have someone they can reach out to. And in my courses where I have a lot of students, you know, the high enrollment courses, small groups can even help make the large classes feel smaller and safer. So don't give up on discussions in a large class. They can still work by breaking the students up into groups of little pods. I mean, even in the largest courses, instructors can build in these brief periods for discussions. You can say, okay, break into your groups and talk about this. You know, it's almost like a large think pair share. And I try organizing students into teams and then have them sit with their teammates for the entire semester. So that way they, when I do say, okay, get into your groups, they don't have to get up and move a lot of seats. They're already right near each other in a little cluster and they just have to turn and, and do those discussions. And sometimes I even ask teams to come up with appropriate names for their, for their group, for their team. And that helps give them a sense of ownership and belonging. So they could even name their group. Now, when it comes to groups, I recommend randomly assigning students to groups because I found that self-selected groups, they always pick their friends and they can easily get off topic. And at multiple points during class, I pose a question for team discussion and to ensure that the team stay on topic, I like to wander the room, right? And kind of eavesdrop on the debates. So I can make sure they're on point. They're not talking about, you know, the last night's TV show that they watched. And then after a few minutes, I randomly call on a few teams to offer their responses. This team-based approach gives students a, a small number of classmates who they know, which makes participating in discussion feel a little bit more comfortable and safe, right? Because they're in their little pods. And students leave class on that first day, understanding that I, as the teacher, expect more than civil attention in my classes. So again, I'm setting that norm. I'm changing the norm right on day one. Number three, try having a discussion about discussions. Because sometimes students don't know, and this helps. 
This is another effective first day strategy. And again, some students, because they see taking part in class discussion as optional, may be resentful of your expectations that they participate. They may, may even feel that you are out to try to get them, you know, to catch them, you know, unprepared for class and maybe to embarrass them publicly. So they, they resent that. And shy students and those, but maybe English as a second language may feel that you are making them, you know, unnecessarily anxious by requiring their participation or their verbal participation. So those perspectives left unattended and fester and lead to, you know, unnecessary hostile relationships between you and your students. So I have found that having a discussion about discussions can help everyone overcome those concerns. So I want to tell them why I utilize discussions in my class and why they're so valuable. And you can do that too by, you know, trying, trying a couple of steps that you can do to facilitate that. So one, ask students why they think you're making participation in discussions and expectation and perhaps, you know, a percentage of their grades. Say, why do I even bring, why do teachers bring discussions into classroom? Inquire about their time in other courses. They have made heavy use of discussions. You know, well, in the past, were those positive experiences? Why were they positive? Why not? What made discussions helpful to them in classes? When did a discussion seem unproductive? You know, get them discussing discussions. And then you can explain, well, research demonstrates that when students participate in class discussions, it benefits them. Point out that most students will pursue careers that require them to work in teams. And often you don't get to pick those teams. To be an effective team member, one must be able to engage in dialogue and learn from their colleagues and help deal with challenges as a group, you know, social animals. And use this time to develop discussion guidelines for the class. You might adopt a kind of a civility guideline. Like it is okay to challenge and refute ideas or positions from your classmates, but not. It is not acceptable to attack someone, either personally or engage in name calling or any of that, you know, and discuss the differences between unsubstantiated opinions and reasoned, supported, right, um, you know, arguments. When students participate in crafting the, the, the rules, the discussion rules, they are more likely to also take ownership of their own involvement in those conversations. Sometimes that's helpful, you know, if they're mature enough, professional enough, you know, you can come up with these rules right there in class, write them on a board and then everybody agrees to them. And another one, another good tip, have students pair up, you know, try a classic assessment technique like think, pair, share to encourage discussions, you know, pose a question or topic right there on day one, give students a minute to write a response. Then they pair off and share their responses. Now, typically, you would next ask for volunteers to share their answers with the whole class. That's how a think-pair-share works. However, sometimes I switch it up by asking for volunteers. Again, you're risking or risk the consolidation of responsibility norm, you know, to a certain couple of students, right? It's the same students who regularly speak up when they volunteer. So if you ask for, all right, now everybody's did their think pair share, who wants to, who wants to respond? It's going to be those same students that always do it. And again, you're going to have that discussion with just five or eight students. So how you can change that is instead you could do something like whose partner has a brilliant idea, brilliant insight, whose partner really hit the nail on the head and summarized the important points. Raise your hand and point out your amazing partner and let's give them a chance to speak up. So now you're putting it on someone else to maybe tell someone that has the great idea but wouldn't normally volunteer to give them that recognition and give them that chance to share in class. And this approach is particularly helpful with those, you know, the very bright yet very shy students that we all have in our classes. 
But this exercise means that they've already had an opportunity to collect their thoughts and then rehearse them with a partner in that small think-pair-share group. And now they are being publicly affirmed for the quality of their comments, making it much less anxiety-provoking to speak up in front of everyone in their class. And usually they'll appreciate that. Okay, another one, fifth one here, number five, take the conversation online. You know, we all have our learning management systems, so you might have, you know, strong, you know, reservations about requiring classes that have, you know, severe anxiety or really shy, introverted to speak up in class, but you can do a compromise. You can try moving some of the discussions online using your LMS. So that way there you can pose a question and they can respond by writing, which, you know, takes away some of that public speaking. Now, how do you keep a discussion on track? Well, you set the stage for a good discussion. You're all set. The students know that you expect participation. They're ready. Maybe they're not eager, but they're ready to dive in. Now you face a different challenge, keeping the conversation focused, fair, and inviting for all students. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, some of the following suggestions that I'm going to give you are steps you can take during class. Others are things that you and your students can do ahead of time to encourage focused discussions and broad participation. So here's a tip. Slow down the dominant talkers. We all have them in our classes. We just mentioned them. Classmates tend to have a love-hate relationship with the dominant talkers, right? On the one hand, the talkers are appreciated. When a question is posed, students know that they can count on that dominant talker, you know, the one that extrovert that always speaks up in class to respond, which greatly decreases the likelihood that the professor will cold call those who are unwilling or unprepared to participate. In such moments, the non-talkers will sometimes physically adjust their positions to even look at one or more of the dominant talkers as if hoping they will speak up on behalf of the class, right? Yeah, pose the question, everyone looks at this one or two students in the class and expects them to talk. On the other hand, students can be annoyed by those who talk too much or share too much personal information. They're just blabbing and they're just extroverted and want to talk. Now, dominant talkers are typically more extroverted and willing to process material aloud. They may even wander around a topic as they're talking it through, figuring out what they think as they speak. Whereas the more introverted students need to gather their thoughts in their head before they share them in class. So if suddenly they are called upon to speak without having had the opportunity to process their thoughts, the introverts may perceive the instructor as engaging in you know, some kind of hostile behavior, like they're trying to catch them, right? So how can you slow down the dominant talkers while allowing time for the other students to process the information? Well, you can always use the what I just mentioned earlier, the think-pair-share technique. It's an obvious strategy, but there are many others too. Some are as simple as saying, let's hear from someone who hasn't spoken up yet, or I've heard a lot from the front of the room. Now I want to know what those in the back are thinking, or I've heard a lot from the left side of the room. Now let's talk to someone on the right side. This kind of signals to the dominant talkers that it's time to allow others to join in. You can also control the rhythm. You know, one way to ensure broad participation and not just reining in the dominant talkers by opening up the floor is to limit who can speak and how often. And how you can do that can be a fun way. And I've used these in classrooms and seen it used by other faculty members that I know, my colleagues. And that's, you know, they can give them out chips. Sometimes they use chips, uh, like poker chips, right? And it becomes a fun, not restrictive way. 
As students enter the classroom, they each pick up three like poker chips. And when they speak, they place a poker chip in a basket. Once they've used up the three chips, they may no longer contribute. And to make sure everyone participates, require all students to use up their chips by the end of class. So that's one way. Another one is a ball. We've all seen that, the Nerf ball or something they throw around. So you have this Nerf ball or another object you give to a student uh, that's going to be speaking. It gives them the ownership of the discussion. And only the person holding the ball is allowed to speak. When the speaker finish, he or she selects who goes next by tossing the ball to a classmate. And then that person will have to answer. So that becomes like a fun way too. And quizzes. I use quizzes. Quizzes are more than just for the syllabus. You know, many professors and teachers use quizzes of one sort or another to make sure students do the reading. It's an effective technique. Your your challenge is to structure quizzes, though, in a way that does not feel punitive, yet results in students being well-prepared to discuss the material. And here are some ways that you can do that. When students arrive, provide a question on the board or up on your screen that's tied to the assigned reading. Give them five or so minutes to write a response and then randomly call on students to share their thoughts. They can simply read their response or they can elaborate on it. And their comments become that starting point focusing the discussion on important ideas from the reading. So right when they walk in the class, you pop it up on screen and just say, everyone take out a piece of scrap paper. You got five minutes, write an answer to this. And then you just start calling on people and having discussions. A variation on this approach should give students the question ahead of time and ask them to bring a response in with them. You know, we could say, bring in a paragraph on this topic, or even up to a page that they bring to class and that they're ready to share it. And this just-in-time quizzes are another strategy. You know, ask students to complete a brief online quiz an hour or two before class starts. So they don't have too much time ahead of time uh, before class, you know, to really talk about it or do the research, but they know right before class, they have to do that quiz before they get in. This can be a combination of multiple choice, short answers, and then grade the quizzes before class. You know, again, it could be just one short question and select some sample responses to share without naming names as a starting point for the discussion. So you can use that. So you can say, um, well, I just I got a particularly strong response. Um, why do you think this is a good response? You can read part of their answers out there. Again, um, I like to keep the students anonymous on that and open the discussion by saying, here's a good attempt that ended up going astray. Where and how did this response get off track? Or how could this the writer have made this better? So you're using the examples, but you're not picking on the students. So these approaches help the students learn to identify the differences between a well-argued response that uses evidence from the reading versus one that is merely you know, unsubstantiated opinion. So all these techniques work and use discussion questions to focus their reading and the resulting debate, you know, hand out the questions in advance of a reading assignment. All right, tomorrow I want you to read or by next class, read chapter 12. And here's some questions I want you to be thinking about as you read it. This is particularly helpful when the texts are difficult, kind of focuses their reading. So as the students read the questions, help them identify key points and concepts and controversies. And then during class, you know, when you actually meet after they've done the reading, the questions become the basis of the day's discussions. And you can frame your reading questions in ways that might result in more engaging discussions as well. For example, make them relevant to students' lives. Ask students to apply concepts from the reading to their lived experiences, to situations they may encounter in their careers. You know, make the questions analytical in scope by asking the students to summarize or critique an author's argument or make sure they don't miss the big points too. students often find it difficult, especially in like first year of college, freshman 
to discern when a key idea or an important nuance is being communicated during a class discussion, especially if it's a, you know, vigorous debates going on, they can lose track of what they're supposed to take away. So you could use something like that. Like sometimes the simple strategy is ask students to repeat a key idea while you write it on the board. And when a student makes a crucial point, overtly emphasize it by saying, that's it. Did everyone hear what Sally just said? That's it. Maybe write it on the board. So then you're, you're bringing it to the front to make sure that students go, oh, well, in case they missed that. And summarize the discussion of one topic before moving on to the next. And that can help keep the discourse on track because if there was this big talk, the students may be like, what was all that about? There's so much information. What was I supposed to take away from that? One technique is to, again, summarize the discussion. Say something like, okay, we've heard several key insights today. Bobby noted that dry heat cooking is the absence of moisture, while Katie countered that braising uses both dry and moist heat cooking to accomplish its goals. And then Mary took us to the micro level by focusing on the Maillard reaction and the browning effect it provides to foods through the non-enzymatic reaction between sugars and proteins when heated. Okay, so now we're ready to move on. So see, you're, as the teacher, you're the facilitator, you're condensing all those important points and summarizing them at the end and then moving on. So this chunks the material so it doesn't end up one big, long, one, two-hour discussion on a lot of topics, and then the students lose what the important takeaways are. And you can even write these on the board. So your goal here is to help make learning more obvious. And now, but in the process, again, you can help keep the discussion focused right? Keep it focused. And one way I do it is I put it in my book there too. I think it's uh, chapter five on page 34 is the muddiest point. And you can just Google muddiest point and see this. And that's where you shine a light on the muddiest point. It's a tried and true assessment technique, which helps you clarify challenging concepts in a discussion. And at the same time, give reluctant talkers an opportunity or an additional opportunity to participate. So here's how it works. In the last few minutes of class, students write a brief summary of the topic or idea that they felt was the least clear in the day's discussion. That's the muddy part. It's often helpful to directly ask them to summarize this muddiest point, or sometimes that maybe they didn't have anything that was unclear. So I would also say, or the most important point. So I'd say, okay, we got five minutes left. Everyone take out a piece of scrap paper. I want you to write, what was the muddiest? What was the most unclear thing today? Like, yeah, I heard it, but I didn't really get it. I wish I had more information on it. Write that down. Or if you nothing, everything was clear, write down what was the most important point? What's the biggest takeaway that you got from today? Put that down. And then I collect their comments as they leave. And then before the next class, I would review their responses to see which topics I should revisit. And this exercise gives you, the teacher, insight into any gaps between what you tried to emphasize and what students perceived as the most significant material discussed in class. You know, you might have put a photo up. For example, students might focus on a picture or photograph you shared, but failed to recognize the concepts <laughs> that were being illustrated in that picture or photo. You know, why you actually showed that photo. So then you can recap those key points at the start of the next class, just to make sure that they're all on track, kind of like a formative assessment before you move on. All right, now I want to move into grading. And this is a kind of a topic that can go either way. Should you grade class discussions? Now, clearly you can grade the quizzes or the short essay responses that are part of your class discussion that we just talked about. But what about grading the actual student's participation, the actual dialogue itself? 
Well, knowing they will be graded certainly motivates students to speak up in class, but are they really speaking up with any relevant and contributing to the conversation? Or are they just talking so they can get points? Well, there's two schools of thoughts as to whether it's a good idea. Now, the general argument against is some students are painfully shy and to require them to speak in class is unkind and unreasonable. And because of their severe anxiety that the expectation provokes, it's really not a good idea. What's more, it's inherently unfair to judge the quality of students' fleeting comments in the midst of a class discussion, right? Because they haven't had time to really prepare the, their thoughts or their argument. And the task also becomes impossible as the number of students increase. You know, if you're doing it with 10, that might be okay to do, but what if you had a class of 40? The result is that the extroverted students are rewarded for being extroverted rather than for the quality of their remarks, while the introverted students are devalued. They don't have a chance to talk. Or... Now, the argument in favor of them is we ask students to do a variety of things that may make them uncomfortable. Some students find multiple choice quizzes or essay exams stressful, yet we give those tests anyway. Other students struggle to be articulate in writing, but we still assign papers. We require students to read challenging and difficult texts, even when they find the material discomforting. Uh, math-phobic students must complete quantitative you know, reasoning courses. Why? Because we as teachers believe that this will lead to greater learning. I mean, we all know sometimes being uncomfortable is a necessary evil to facilitate learning. Why should we treat class discussions any differently? So that's the argument in favor. But the one thing we can agree on, whatever our position, is that grading class discussions is highly subjective endeavor. It's hard enough to track who speaks and how often, let alone assess the quality of their contributions, right? So maybe you have a rubric for it. And that's what I'm getting to, because there's an alternative. Have students assess their own class participation, which is what I like to do. Here's one way to do it. At the end of class, ask students to score their participation based on a rubric that you have created. Like you hand out a handout. What do you guys think you did today in participation? And then alternatively, you could three or four times a semester ask your students to write a narrative assessment of their participation in class, you know, guided by a rubric. So you say, okay, we've been talking for three weeks in this class. Here's a rubric. Uh, score your, your ability. Write me one page paper. You know, you can then evaluate the narrative, indicate whether or not you agree and offer advice on how to improve. So I might write back to them and say, yeah, you could speak up more or not. So there's ways that you can do that. Now, self-assessment has two key advantages. First, it relieves you as the teacher of the burden of simultaneously managing a class discussion while attempting to note the frequency and quality of you know, individual students' comments, right? It's too hard to do both. Second, it pushes students to evaluate their own contributions to their own learning, makes them, you know, put it on them, the responsibility. So you could do either one of those. Now, what do you do if a student's remarks are wrong or incorrect? You know, we've all had that. We're doing a discussion and we ask someone and they speak up. Well, there was a time when teachers, at least in the movies, that's the way it's portrayed, right? We've all seen these examples, would publicly humiliate a student for an incorrect or an ill-advised remark. Well, few academics, few of us as teachers would regard that as good teaching today, if anyone ever did. Because it's not only unprofessional, but it's also because one harsh or unsympathetic response to an incorrect answer is going to shut down the willingness of the entire class to engage, right, in discussion for the duration of the semester. You call out a student and embarrass them, everyone else is going to be like, I'm never talking in class. <laughs> I just saw what happened to this person. No way am I setting myself up for that. So you just, you're trying to build discussions by shooting them down or embarrassing them. It's not good. 
So that said, when you structure a course to include regular class discussions, you have to realize you open the door for students to be wrong, right? Which is part of learning. And they're going to give false and misleading responses. And you just have to be prepared for that. We don't want those to be the ones other students remember. Obviously, they put a misleading response. We don't want the takeaway for the rest of the class to be like, oh, okay, I guess that was correct. So we need to use strategies for dealing with such situations without alienating the students. So there's a few ways you can do that. And I'm going to talk about those now. One I call affirm then correct. So some critics see this as hand-holding, but I don't. Because if you want students to keep participating, it's important to first affirm their contributions. You don't want to discourage those who were anxious about responding, yet they took a risk, right? They stuck their neck out there, but they were wrong in what they said. So I don't want to, you know, shoot them down. So I look for something that I can reinforce in the students' remarks, such as, wow, you got the first step correct, but then you ran into some common misunderstandings or, okay, that's one strategy, but that's not as effective as others. And then I may bring in a classmate to rescue them. Who can help us identify another approach? Or, hey, that's one way of looking at it, but there may be some confusion there. Who can help Johnny out and add to what he just said? So that's one way. But what if a student makes an ill-conceived argument or neglects to offer any evidence? Well, here too, you as the teacher can affirm their articulation of the position and then invite the student or, like I mentioned, the rest of the class to critique it. You might say something like, okay, Johnny, well, that summarizes one viewpoint well, but let's play devil's advocate for a minute. If you wanted to rebuke the position that John just articulated, what evidence would you present? Again, we're bringing in the class now. This allows classmates to challenge John's unsupported argument without appearing to attack John. You may even want to pose that question back to the speaker themselves, back to John. You might say, John, okay, assume for a moment that you believe the opposite. How would you challenge the argument that you just made? Now, you're not asking John to disagree with himself. You're asking him to consider and articulate the counter argument. And this approach helps all of your students question their own assumptions. So again, we're not calling them out to be wrong, but we're not letting it slide through that, okay, that's right. So we're going to have to do it tactfully, right? But you want to also be respectful when they've lost the plot, right? You know, on some occasions, a student's comments isn't necessarily wrong. It just seems kind of out in left field. In these situations, I respectfully ask the student to make the connections between their comment and the topic we are discussing. You know, I might say something like, sorry, uh, you lost me there. I'm I'm slow on the pickup today. Please, Johnny, explain the connection for me again. I'm, I'm a little confused. Now, this shifts any blame away from the student and on to me as the instructor. It's my confusion that's at fault here, not what they said. And often there is a connection between the topic and the student's comment, only it is two or three unarticulated steps removed, right? They're not really clear on that. So I want them to be able to process that information and re-say it, you know, re-bring it out to the class and articulate it maybe in a different way. Another approach is to ask classmates to assist the student who is on the wrong track. I kind of already mentioned this. So I might say, We're not on that subject yet, and I know it is easy to get off track here. Who can help us out and redirect us to finish what we were just discussing? So now I'm kind of not dismissing the person as a person, but I'm dismissing what they said so we can get back on track. So to summarize, effective class discussions rarely occur by chance. They happen because 
A, you've structured your course to ensure that they happen, and B, you've established from day one that students will be expected to take part in discussions. And this is a good thing because the benefits of active participation for students is that they will learn more and develop that critical thinking skills that a higher education is supposed to facilitate. Now, that's a lot of information there, so I want to conclude, if I may, by leaving you with my top 10 ways that I have found to help improve class discussions. Okay, we'll just do 10 bullet points. Number one, be more focused and for less time. It's easy to forget that students are newcomers to academic discourse. As teachers, we can go on about a topic of interest for hours or days because, you know, we're the experts on it. Well, students, however, aren't used to exchanges that include points and counterpoints and connections to previous points, reference to research and, you know, things like that. So early on, students do better with short discussions that are focused and specific. Think 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. So don't be doing these long two-hour discussions to keep them short. Go back to content, maybe lecture, videos, and then maybe bring another discussion into your class. Number two, use better hooks to launch the discussion. Usually discussion starts with a question, and that works if it's a good and powerful question, as I already mentioned, and you would write these in advance into your lesson plan. But prompts of that caliber require thoughtful preparation. They don't usually pop into our minds the moment we need them. But questions aren't the only options. You know, you could do a quotation, you could do a short scenario, you could do a hypothetical case or some current event. All of these can help jumpstart a discussion. You just have to give them a little bit of thought, those hooks to get it going. Number three, pose the question first before asking a student to respond. What I mean by that is when you call on a student before posing the question, the rest of the class is less likely to listen to the question, must much less formulate a response because they know it's not going to them, right? If you say, Billy, tell me, well, everyone else says, well, he's on, he's on Billy, so I don't have to pay attention to this. I don't have to come up with a response. However, posing the question first before identifying someone to respond lets students know that they will be held accountable and should be prepared to answer every question. So I might say... I have a question. What is the definition of mise en place? Who can tell me that? Johnny, how about you? So now everybody heard the question. They're all thinking about it. They're all formulating. And then I go right to the name. Number four, allow plenty of time or think time by waiting to let the students come up with their responses. By waiting seven to 10 seconds is the expected before students to respond. So I like to ask students to refrain from responding until you ask for a volunteer or identify someone. I don't want them shouting out answers. I tell them, you got to put your hands up. And then I stall. Now, most teachers, research says, only wait one to three seconds before expecting a response. Well, having this increased wait time can seem like an eternity if you've ever done that in class and can even feel uncomfortable. But you want to help students adjust to an extended wait time and use that time to repeat and rephrase the question. I also suggest that students use the time maybe to write down their responses. So I might say, okay, um, here's a question for you. And I want you to take time to think about, let's take 10 seconds. And here's the question, you know, what is mise en place or whatever. And I'll say, and while they're doing that, you can write that down if you want to get your answer down on paper, because I'm going to ask for someone in just a minute here. And then I may use that time to say, again, what is the definition of mise en place? So I'm taking that extra time in there. Or sometimes I just take a drink of water, right? I'll pose the question, then I'll step away and I'll get a drink of water. So I'm kind of stalling a little bit. Again, this gives time for all students to come up with their response, not just the ones that are quick thinkers or the extrovert. And never, never, never answer your own questions. 
We've all heard that before. If the students know you will give them the answer after a few seconds of silence, then what is their incentive? And they would just learn to wait you out. So you need to know, I would wait it out, wait out. Sometimes it's like a minute and there's just dead silence. It's really awkward, but you need to hold it out because eventually the students will feel that awkwardness too. And someone will raise their hand and speak out. Number five, make sure you give all students the opportunity to respond and hold them accountable by expecting and requiring, facilitating their participation and their contributions. And if you call on a student who is not ready to respond or does not know the answer, either have them take an educated guess or allow the student to pass and then give them another opportunity later. Do not accept, I don't know for an answer. Because that is just given up. And I tell the students, if I call on you, you take an educated guess. Because you might be right, probably be wrong, but you might be right. But if you just say, I don't know, you've already, you're already wrong, right? You've already given up every chance on that. So I tell them to make an educated guess. Or in other areas, I, I might have them allowed to say, ah, can I pass on this one? And then I'll ask another student. And then I'm going to come back to them with the next question to know that they don't just get to you know, skip themselves. You can also, if a student says, hmm, tries to give you an answer, I may offer hints or suggestions to kind of guide the student in formulating quality responses. So I'd say, you know, okay, we talked about it last week. Remember, it's very similar to, you know, I might give them some hints to help them come up with a response. Now, six, establish a safe environment for risk-taking by guiding students in the process of learning from their mistakes. As we've already talked about, always try to dignify incorrect responses by saying something positive about the student's effort. Public embarrassment only confirms apprehension about class participation. You're going to shut down the students, if not the class. When students make mistakes, build their confidence and trust by asking follow-up questions to help them self-correct and achieve success. Number seven, talk less or not at all. Too many, we've all seen this, we've probably been guilty of it, right? Too many classroom discussions are still dominated by teacher talk. You will talk less if you assign yourself a recorder role. You'll key in on the essence of comments, record the examples, and list the questions. You'll be listening closely and will probably hear more than you usually do because you aren't thinking about what you're going to say next. You know, you can function as the discussion facilitator, you know, recognize those who are volunteering, encourage others to speak, point out good comments. You know, challenging those with different views to share them. Do everything you can to make it a good student discussion, not teacher discussion. Let them go. Play devil's advocate with the uh, someone else in the class. Reserve or hold back your comments till the very, very end or even the next day. Let the students talk. It's going to help you learn so much about what the students know, but it also help them articulate and formulate their own answers. Number eight, pause. And that's to stop the discussion and ask students to think about what's been said so far and ask them to write down what struck them as key ideas or what was a new insight or what's some questions still unanswered, maybe where they think the discussion should go next. Think these short pauses, about 30 seconds, you know, maybe a minute periodically in the discussion. We talked a little bit about this before where you could summarize the key points and it's kind of just to chunk it up so it doesn't, all the information doesn't get pushed together and get lost on the students. So after you switching into another question, maybe stop, pause, have them write down, summarize for them, you know, and chunk it up. Number nine, end with something definitive. 
you know, return back to that hook that launched the discussion. What was that question or that quote or that picture that you started with? Ask some students to write maybe a one sentence summary of the discussion. Ask other students to list the questions the discussion has answered or ask another group to identify unanswered questions that emerged during the discussion. Or finally, you could use what students have written to help them bring closure to the discussion. So you want to end with something definitive. Bring it back to the beginning. Again, that summary, that conclusion for them. And number 10, use the discussion. Keep referring to it. Remember that discussion we had about X? Uh, how did we conclude with that discussion we had on Tuesday? You know, refer to individual comments made during discussion. You know, Paula had an interesting insight about X. Who remembers what she said? Does it relate to this topic we're talking about today? And if you really want students to listen and take discussion seriously, use a comment made in the discussion as the frame for a short essay question on the next exam or quiz, right? Use the discussion that you had. Say, oh, great. I'm going to use that as a, a quiz question. You know, you may also want to discuss discussions in general. As I mentioned, I briefly do this by asking my class, why do teachers use them? What keeps everyone listening? How do they help us learn discussions or do a debriefing? You know, so the discussion we just had, say, we'd like to improve it. How would you recommend we improve discussions and pose that question to your class? So use those discussions, but you don't want to just let them go and then move on. You know, bring them back at another class at another time during another lecture. All right. So in conclusion, leading discussions can be a stimulating and enjoyable way to teach. However, keep in mind that many students will not come into your class with highly developed discussion skills. Moreover, leading a discussion does not always come naturally to the instructor. Now, no matter what level of students you are teaching or how comfortable you as a person feel in facilitating a discussion, you must carefully prepare and then actively facilitate the discussions to ensure that they are disciplined and inclusive and promote learning. And each time you facilitate a discussion, here's a great tip for you, you're going to learn something about how best to approach the topic. In other words, you're going to learn from the experience. Therefore, after a discussion, reflect on how it went, and just like you do with a lesson plan, jot down some brief notes on how each discussion went and any ideas for revision or improvement. And then use those notes as the basis for reorganizing the discussion in the future, as well as improving your presentation skills, uh, rethinking the material that you want to include, and even developing new ideas for future teaching or even research projects. In other words, rethink, retool, and revise. And then include these notes in your file with the course so that they are readily accessible the next time you teach the course. Okay, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Till we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye now. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network, and we hope you enjoyed the show and this episode. Your feedback and comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. So please let us know what you think. You can email your comments to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, all one word, foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, or even leave us a voicemail on our audience response hotline. And that number is area code 207-835-1275. That's 207-835-1275. 
We would also appreciate it if you would share the podcast with everyone you know. And don't forget to buy us a coffee or two if you want to support the show and our efforts. Just go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash Chef Roach or through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Dr. Professor Chef. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We truly appreciate any help and support you provide. Thank you in advance.